Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. unbelievable that we get to pray to that God that we just sang about, the same God of the Bible. We get to come here today, 2,000 years later, and pray to you, and you hear us every word, every whisper. Father, I pray for our church, wherever they're coming in from today, whatever the week was like, that as we worship you, and as we talk about you, and as we talk about living like you, Father, that you would transform us from the inside out. Make us feel new because we are. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat and welcome to Three Creeks Church. My name is Joel and I get to be the pastor here. And I was having a conversation this week with somebody who, who just like me, when they were a kid, their parents uh, would go on to those websites and find out which movies were okay to watch. You know what I'm saying? There was a full report, and sometimes you could even find movies that were almost good enough, but there was one scene or two scenes. So, you know, in some of these movies, they would literally just take the whole scene out of parts of these movies that we would watch as kids. And, and this person I was talking to this week said that they, as a kid, they wanted to watch Independence Day, but uh, the, the girl in the beginning of the movie did not have a reputable uh, profession, and so they just had to cut that whole part out of the beginning of the movie. And then at the end of the movie, when he finally gets back with the girl, you're like, it's the climax of the movie. It's the good scene. And you're like, who is she? Like, I, at no point have I ever been introduced to her. And, uh, and I say that to say that because this is week nine in a series in Ephesians, Perhaps today you will have feelings like that where I'm talking about something and referencing something in week four or week six and you're going, what is he talking about? Uh, perhaps it's uh, fuel behind the invitation to go back and listen to this whole series. I've really enjoyed it. And um, so hopefully, though, this will feel like mostly a movie that you can understand. Perhaps here and there something will be confusing, but I'll try to help as best I can. Uh, remember that Ephesians was not originally a book. The Bible has 66 books, and they weren't written as 66 volumes from the same author or even 66 different authors, but rather the book of Ephesians was originally just a letter written by a man named Paul, who used to be the pastor at this church in a city called Ephesus, but he had since left. He had been there for three years, and he loved the church so much, and they loved him so much that when he left... Everybody cried. You know, they, they really loved each other, but now Paul's in prison under house arrest. But apparently, he still has a, a quill and some ink and a parchment because he writes his old friends a letter under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he sends it to them. These Christians living in this city called Ephesus, which was a very, very important city at the time. And if you uh, have tracked with us at all, and listen to any of the first eight weeks in the series, you'll, you'll remember that the first half of the letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first 66 verses, it's all about what God has done for us. 
Because Paul wants these Ephesians to understand that spiritual maturity, both on an individual level and on a corporate level as a church, starts not with how well we're doing for God, but rather what God has done for us. That's where spiritual maturity starts. And so Paul's intentional to put that on the first half. And then the second half, what we're in now, everything that Paul writes is under the umbrella of the salvation and grace of God that he explains so beautifully in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And so if today feels like a little bit of a to-do list, well, you have to understand it is all on the basis of what God has already done for us. If I were to ask you, how you doing spiritually? And you would begin to rattle off how you're doing in your spiritual disciplines or how you're feeling about God. Well, that would show to me that you don't really fully understand the magnitude of the gospel and how much it transforms a person's life. The most mature answer to that question is, well, let me just start with this. God has saved me from my sins. And so we can start there. And so because of that, I'm doing great spiritually. And how, it, how I'm working it, working it out, well, then we can get to that part. But the first thing that we ought to say when asked, how you doing spiritually? It's as simple as, Jesus has saved me from my sins. He's done something for me that I could not do for myself. That is the basis of spiritual maturity. Paul wants these young Christians in this young church to grow up spiritually. He knows some stuff that's coming their way. He wants them to be able to handle it. And so in the same way, Three Creeks... I want us, as we study this letter, to grow up because I think in my lifetime and in yours, we're going to handle some stuff that is coming our way and we're going to need to mature a little bit. The title of today's message is The Great Misunderstanding. This is an important step in our journey and you might be, th- you, you might be wondering, well, what could this be about? This great misunderstanding. For example, you might be wondering, Joel, are you talking about the misunderstanding that I've had? that every, that the odds are 50-50 when a coin is tossed in the air as to whether or not it will fall heads or tails. And I would say, no, that is a misunderstanding that you have because it's actually 49-51, slightly favoring the face that it was on your finger when you, when you threw it. You are, you've been greatly misunderstood, but that's not the great misunderstanding. Perhaps some of you have been saying things like espresso or chipotle, And while I would say, yes, you are gravely misunderstanding the pronunciation of those words, no, that's not the great misunderstanding. The great misunderstanding that I want to talk about today is something that I think most American churches are getting wrong, certainly misunderstood a little bit. It's definitely something that we have misunderstood at times, will be tempted to misunderstand going forward. And, and it's, it's this misunderstanding that really inhibits spiritual maturity. It really impedes spiritual growth. It significantly reduces the impact that a local church can have in a local community if we don't get this right. It, it really messes things up. And I think we ought to talk about it. I want to get it right. So today, 10 verses, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7, go all the way to verse 16. And here's my outline before we get there. Here's the outline. Number one, I'm going to describe what a healthy, mature church should look like and feel like. And then second, I'm going to talk about this great misunderstanding, perhaps where we've gotten it wrong from time to time. 
And then I'm going to describe how we're doing here at Three Creeks. I'm going to give you some examples of how we're doing well, how we're not doing so good. And at the end, I'm going to express how important it is that we get this right and the impact that our church could have if we understand this correctly. So let me read these 10 verses for you. I'll read the whole thing, and then I'll kind of chomp back through it and try to explain a little bit better what exactly Paul's saying when he wrote to his buddies in Ephesians. You ready? All right. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This part's a little confusing. Don't get caught up in it. I'll try to describe, I'll try to explain it in a second. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions He who descended, he's talking about Jesus, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. That's where he is now in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do what? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, if we get this right, then, verse 14, we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow To become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a lot in there. I'm going to try to do my best to, to unpack it for us. First, let me highlight what Paul describes as what a healthy and mature church looks like. There's, there's a number of nuggets in there that you could pull from and you come up with a little longer description or definition of that or answer to that question. But, but the, vet, the best verse, I think, that identifies it is verse 13. Read it again. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. If you are taking notes or if you do have a Bible, highlight those three words, unity, mature, and fullness. Unity, mature, and fullness. The unity of the faith means a shared and true understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. And we keep the main thing, the main thing. A mature church is not content bickering about inconsequential theological differences of opinion. A mature church understands that when we get to heaven, we are all going to be wrong about something. We are all going to scratch our heads and go, ah, I had that, I had that wrong. We're all going to be wrong about something. A mature church understands this. They're not content bickering. We just can't be wrong about the main thing that Jesus came for us lived for us, died for us, rose again for us. And if we put our faith in him, then we will be saved. We've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And mature church also doesn't say, well, that's all I need to know. 
It, it would probably be dangerous if we all went to seminary, but we are all theologians because to be a theologian is to study God and to learn more about him. We're all to have the approach of, I want to know more about him. When we come to church, when we go to community group, when you, when you meet with somebody and have a spiritual conversation, this is an act of being a theologian, of wanting to know. We should constantly be wrestling with the truths of God's word and how to apply them to our lives. And so a mature church holds both of those in balance where we don't get so off balance that we just fight with each other, but we also continue to want to learn about God as much as we possibly can in this life. There's a unity in the faith there. You see, the hope is that, as Paul writes, that we would attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which means that if we become a Christian, that the only thing that the, the, the fact that we go to church, that's not the only thing that changes. If, if we're going to attain the, the whole measure, the fullness of Christ, that would imply that our lives, the fullness of our lives would be impacted by our relationship with Christ, which means that our marriages and our money and our friendships and our pain, that everything actually gets touched by this relationship with Christ. And if, listen friends, this is important, if, we actually do allow God to transform us in the way that we do all of these things. We will find, Paul wants us to know this, we will find that God is not this cosmic killjoy that the world wants you to think that he is, telling you don't enjoy the fullness of life. You can't do those things if you're going to be a Christian. God is not trying to hold you back from anything other than the things that will bring you destruction and disappointment and pain in your life. He's trying to protect you because he loves you. And we will find if we let God transform us and do it his way, we'll find that his way really is the best way. And if we collectively have this agreement that we are going to pursue Christ's likeness, we're going to try to pursue godliness, then in that we could attain this unity that Paul's talking about. This maturity that he's talking about, this fullness of Christ, we'll find that living for Jesus really is the best way to live. That's what a healthy church looks like. Okay, how do we potentially get this wrong? The great misunderstanding. Here's the question that I would ask to kind of tee it up. Between us here in this room, who would you describe as being in ministry? My guess is, real quick, you would point at me, because this is my job. This is vocational ministry. That's how we've labeled it. I'm the pastor. I talk on Sundays. I lead the staff. So Joel is in ministry. But that's not how Paul says we ought to think of ministry because if you think that I'm in ministry, that in some ways that would imply that you are not. And Paul wants us to make sure that we don't misunderstand this. Look what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us, each one of us, Everybody that's hearing this letter, then and now, to each one of us, if you're a Christian, grace has been given us as Christ has, as Christ apportioned it to each one of us. Paul here is not talking about the saving grace that is given to us through Jesus. He's talking about the subsequent additional grace in giving each one of us spiritual gifts. If you look at the context that Paul is writing this in, that would make sense. Uh, to illustrate what I'm talking about, let me give you an example. If I told you that on Christmas morning, 
that I showed a tremendous amount of love to Cooper, Judah, and Willow, my three children, you would not think in your mind, wow, Joel must have hugged them and kissed them. You would probably think that if I showed them a tremendous amount of love on Christmas morning, that I gave them a lot of presents that were on their list. That's how I would express my love in that context. And if you look at the whole context of what Paul's writing, you can see that the grace that he has, that Christ has apportioned to each one of us is another way of saying spiritual gifts. And coincidentally, the Greek word for grace is charis, and the Greek word for gifts is charisma, and those two are often tied hand in hand in the New Testament. And so you see that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts that have been given to each, to, to each one of us. And since it's a gift, that means two things. Number one, nobody who's a Christian can ever say, well, I just don't know if I have anything to contribute. What good am I? It just doesn't seem like there's a place for me. That's not allowed because to each one of us, a gift, a spiritual gift has been given. It also would prohibit us from ever being prideful or self-congratulatory about anything that we're good at because it's a gift. And spiritual gifts are supposed to magnify the giver, not the receiver. And you and I have both seen someone get that wrong, and it, makes us, it gives us indigestion when we see people get that wrong. It's nauseating when we see people be so prideful about something that they didn't earn or deserve at all. And, and I, honestly, my six-year-old daughter has the best biblical response to, being, to receiving a compliment about something about her than anything, anybody I've ever witnessed receive a compliment. Oftentimes, I will look at her and I will say, Coops, oh my goodness, I can't even believe it. How in the world did you get so beautiful? And she will literally look at me and she'll go, Dad, you know God made me this way. <laughs> and I'll say, yes, he did. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't say, no, I'm not. She says, God made me that way and points to the giver of the gift. To each one of us, spiritual gifts have been given. In the New Testament, there's four lists of spiritual gifts. You might have heard some of them before, but Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 3 or 4, and Ephesians 4, right here. You're going to about to find out some of them. Total, if you look at all of them, you can, you can tally them up. There's about 20 spiritual gifts that are listed. That is not an exhaustive list. There's no way that those are the only gifts that Christ gives to people. Some of you in here are incredible musicians. You're incredible artists. You're incredible friends. To be a great friend is a spiritual gift. You're, you're businessmen and businesswomen. These are gifts. They're not, they're not supposed to be used to glorify ourselves, but rather glorify God. Now, you might think to yourself, Joel, those are just natural talents. That's just natural wiring. It's how God makes people, or it's how even people that aren't Christians have those things. So how is it a spiritual gift? Okay, let me, let me just explain the difference. You may be born with a talent, but you don't get spiritual gifts until you're born again. And a talent transforms sometimes into a spiritual gift when the spiritual gift is used to reveal the gift giver, God himself. When you use the way that God made you to serve people, love people, encourage people, lift them up, serve the church, serve God, bring glory to him, 
These are the spiritual gifts that God has given you. And part of the march of the Christian is to fan these into flame and use them to serve one another. To each one of us, gifts have been given. I'm not going to take too long on eight and nine, but I do have to talk about it because it's in there. It's just a little confusing, but I'll try, to, I'll try my best to explain it. Verse eight, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul is loosely, loosely quoting from Psalm 68. There's a lot of differing opinions on exactly what this means, but to put it in its most simple form, Jesus ascended into heaven after resurrecting from the dead. You remember this? And when he, for first he descended, you remember Christmas, baby Jesus, the manger, we're on the same page there, he descended. And then he ascended 40 days after resurrecting from the dead. Right before he left, what did he tell his disciples? His closest friends, hey guys, bring it in. I'm heading out of here. And their initial response is to freak out. What? You can't leave. What are we going to do without you? And Jesus says, well, hang on. You didn't let me finish. If I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit down. And sure enough, Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit of God, another member of the Trinity, one God comes down. And it is through the Holy Spirit that all these gifts begin to be given to all the people. So you actually see this picture of the Trinity in what Paul is talking about here. To each one of us, spiritual gifts have been given. Then in verse 11, Paul talks about a couple of the specific ones. I told you there's a list here in Ephesians 4. Here it is. So Christ gave himself, excuse me, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. The pastor teacher, it's kind of like one. So it's, there's really just kind of four apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. And similar to an Enneagram test or a Myers-Briggs test where you go and find out you're a golden retriever, an otter, or a three, or whatever, you could actually go online and take a, an APEST test. A-P-E, and then it's a shepherd teacher instead of the word pastor there. You could take a test. Now, and, and, and while, listen, while all five of those or four of those gifts are real, apostolic gift, evangelistic, prophetic, those are still real, those are gifts— I think, as I study this, that Paul was talking about perhaps some specific groups of people that Christ gave to the church. And that, if he is, that doesn't exclude the fact that these are gifts that still exist for other people today. But in the context of what Paul's writing to the Ephesians, I think it is true, perhaps, that what Paul meant, and this is consistent with the whole of Scripture, so I feel fine saying it, what Paul meant is that first he gave the apostles, which were the founding fathers, if you will, of the first century church. Jesus' disciples and people like Barnabas and Silas and Junia. He gave the church the apostles to lead the charge. People with apostolic gifting or they have vision and they lead and they plant churches and they, they, they take new frontiers. That's what an apostolic gifting would be. And Paul's saying, God, Christ gave the church the apostles. And he also said that Christ gave the church the prophets. Now, he still gives people prophetic gifts, which is a gift to be able to 
see and speak the truth to people in a, in a unique way. But he says, I gave the prophets. Because remember, when the first century apostles are going around saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the real deal. Everybody's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We got to go check against what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote. And let's see if Jesus really does fulfill the prophecies that those guys wrote. And they're checking it out and they're, they're doing their cross-referencing and they're going, wait a minute, Jesus really is fulfilling every prophecy that the prophets wrote about. So the prophets are foundational in the church of, in Ephesus getting off the ground. And then Paul says that he's continuing to give evangelists to the church. An evangelist is somebody that has a unique ability to, to draw the net and call people to a relationship with Christ. So Billy Graham is an evangelist. And Paul was an evangelist. And Francis Chan is right now an evangelist. And, and there are others. Paul, Paul, Christ gives these people to the church. And then Christ also gives, both then and now, the pastor teachers. And you get, you're looking at one. May as well put a bow on my head. I'm a gift. And I, and I don't say that, I don't say that arrogantly. I say that in say, exactly like Cooper. God made me this way. I'm literally, I'm just doing my best to do what I'm created and called to do. God has given me spiritual gifts to lead or teach. And so I want to try to use those to build the church. And I'm one of thousands and thousands of pastor teachers that are standing on platforms today trying to preach the word of God. Christ gives pastor teachers to the church. And look at my job description. You ever notice this? This is all different than what I think you, you think maybe I ought to do. Perhaps this is the great misunderstanding. My job, verse 12, is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, you are in ministry and I am the lead equipper. I'm in ministry as a Christian, but we are all in ministry if we are Christians. My role then is to help you discover who God made you to be and launch you into a life of ministry. Because if you look at it, the people that are supposed to do the works of service or the ministry are his people. And my job is to equip, which is why sometimes I say the day that I took this job, I actually left the ministry. I got into administration. I'm a coach professor type now. I'm not on the front lines like you're supposed to be. Now, in, the in theory, that means that at five o'clock when I go home or when I go to the gym or when I go to the coffee shop or when I go to the library, then I am back into ministry. But my role is to equip his people to do the work of the ministry. We have a misunderstanding that, that ministry has to happen with a pastor in a church. But I've got to draw your attention to the fact that 39 out of the 40 miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament happened outside of a church. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament is the world called to come to church. But over and over and over and over and over and over, the church is called to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Go to Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. You know some of these passages? That's the call of the New Testament is for us to feel like we are in full-time ministry because we're Christians, if we are. All right. So, how are we doing at Three Creeks? And I, I mentioned this earlier, but in some ways, incredibly well. 
and maybe perhaps from time to time, not so great. So let me give you a couple examples of where I think it's going really well. This, my friends, is a picture of Ann Payton. Ann, it couldn't be here today. I asked her permission to share this, and she said, thumbs up. And uh, man, Ann is spiritually gifted in leadership and in compassion, especially for the younger women in our church. So six months ago, she, she calls me. She says, Joel, I've just been having this rumbling. I've got to do something about it. I've been dragging my feet, but I just have to start. Would you, would you be okay if we did a women's retreat? And I said to Anne, I said, with all due respect, I should probably be the one leading the women's retreat. No, I didn't say that. But um, I said, Anne, of course, I've been waiting for someone. I've heard this a lot. I've heard different people say we should start something, but it's always with like a, but you should try to be involved and pull it off too, Joel. Like, and Anne said, I just want to do it. And I see my role in this conversation as the equipper, as the one to support. And so I said, Anne, of course. So she said, hey, when can we do it? What would be the best time? We agreed on late April. And we, uh, she just starts having, building this team, having these meetings. Kaylee Anderson, our uh, administrative director, who actually sat here a little, little bit ago, she went to one of the meetings that Ann ran and came back and she said, it was the best meeting I've ever been in. I thought, I've led some meetings that you've been in. <laughs> so what did she do, you know? And um, Ann is just leading the charge. You would be shocked and thankful at how uninvolved I have been in planning rooted the women's retreat coming up. There's a ton of people signed up for it. It's in a month and a half, I think. All I know are the dates because I'm on dad due to that weekend because Morgan's going to the women's retreat. That is a great example of how Anne is in ministry. Oh, no, no, not full-time. Anne has an unbelievably full-time job. She is busier than probably all of us. Seriously. And she feels called by God to use her gifts to serve the church. And my role then is to equip and empower and say, how can we help? How can we lift you up and let you do this? Because you've got what it takes. You don't need me. You got it. And she's killing the game. Here's another great example. Aaron Davis. Oh, <laughs> sorry, wrong picture. Next one. There it is. I had fun looking for pictures of you, Aaron. Uh, this is Aaron Davis. Aaron Davis caught wind of the women's retreat and thought, oh, let's get a men's retreat off the ground. So Aaron is in the process right now. We met this week on forming a team. And my goal in that meeting, Aaron, was just to sit there and equip you and empower you and call you to lead this thing. And I feel like you feel like you're in ministry in doing this. You've, you've served our church in countless ways over the last four or five years. And this is a new way. You're building a team. And I remember one question you asked me. You said, do we need a speaker and I just, I just wanted to encourage you to say, man, you've got people on your team that are gifted, that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that can do this for the men in our church. And I'm proud of you for seeing that you are in ministry and you don't need somebody on staff somewhere to lead it. You're taking the hill. And I love that about you because God made you to do this kind of stuff. And if you're the kind of people that plan ahead, September 29, 30, October 1st, and I'm speaking to the men in the room and I'm, and I'm serious right now. If we start today, and we don't shave from now until then. The mustaches we could have at the men's retreat would be all time. 
So I'd encourage you to think about that. One time, somebody who is passionate, you don't really know this person, so don't try to figure out who it is, uh, passionate about cornhole, and came and said, hey, we got we to gotta have a men's cornhole thing. And I said, great, when do you want to do it? And the person looked at me and said, well, I need you to do it. Looking at me. I said, you never even see me play cornhole. I, it's not what I'm passionate about. It's what you're passionate about. That's where we might get it mixed up from time to time is if we have these things that God has put in our heart and we hope that somebody else who's on staff goes and tries to pull it off. It's not the only example of, it, of, of conversations I've had that feel like that. And I just want you to know that this is a church that wants to equip you, help you discover your gift, and empower you. And that is awesome. That should make you excited to be in a church that doesn't celebrate the gifts of a few, but rather wants to empower the gifts of many. Because to each one of us, Paul says, Christ has apportioned grace to each one of us. I could put up pictures of our community group leaders. I could put up pictures of our volunteer team leaders. I could put up a picture of Bethany Morgan, who's sitting back there, who leads our creative team. I could put up a picture of Tyler and Julie Gorham, who do all of our pre-marriage counseling, or at least a lot of it. I could put up a picture of our My Village leadership team, of our My Village care community, of the men and women who are leading discipleship groups. I think there's 12 or 15 of them now. I could put up lots of pictures of people who are flying, who have discovered their, that, that what they're gifted in and are using it to serve and love people in our church and outside of our church. In many ways, our church is doing well. I just don't ever want to get this wrong. I want you to feel like you're in ministry here. Last thing, here's the difference it will make if we get this right. Let me read verse 14 through 16 to you again. This is what would happen if we nail this. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Look at these last six words. As each part does its work. You will no longer be infants. You're not going to feel like spiritual babies. If each part does its work, many hands make light work to each one of us. I fear that if we're not careful, that we might end up being top-heavy, where the pressure of ministry falls on very few, and that's not, that would, that would make it so that we would be easily tossed and turned. But if we all go, God, how did you make me, and how do you want me to serve and contribute? What role am I supposed to play? That is the way that we would no longer be infants. And this is the church that I want to be a part of. And I think it's the church that you want to be in. When you were a baby, like a baby baby, infant baby, you needed milk. 
And so every two to three hours, you would cry. And then your mother would take you and attach you to herself, and you would eat. You would eat, and every two or three hours, you would just do it again. And in between, you would offer a neon-colored collage in a diaper as a gift to those that are serving you. But every, every two or three hours, you would just eat, neat, eat, neat. It's all you did for like six months. You just eat, sleep, eat, sleep. And as a baby, that is so appropriate. None of you go, well, that's ridiculous. You go, no, that's appropriate. But I think we can all agree that there gets, it gets to a point where that becomes inappropriate. And we can disagree about what age that is. But I think we all understand there's a point where that becomes awkward. It just gets weird. It's inappropriate. It doesn't make any sense anymore. That somebody who's been around for years still needs treated like an infant. And I don't want our relationship in any way because it is disturbing on many levels to be like that. You know what I'm saying? Where, man, man, if, if the approach is I'm going to go to church and I just want them to feed me if you are an infant, if you're new to this, you're allowed to say that. It's appropriate. If you've been doing this a while, it's inappropriate. It's immature. And I don't want to be infants. If I hear people say, my church isn't doing it for me anymore, I just want to put a bib on them and put them down for a nap. It's, it's just immature. A mature view is is that we would all go, rather, how is, uh, I lost my train of thought. Essentially, you're gifted. You are. And you may not know what you're gifted in, but you are. You really are. And God wants to use you. I'm not talking to the person next to you. You and how he made you to love and serve people in here and in our community. And I'm telling you, I, I don't want you to desire a church with a great pastor. I want you to desire to be a part of a church that is an empowered people where everybody who's there believes deep in their gut that they're a part of it, that they're contributors, that they're in ministry. If, like I said at the beginning, if we don't get this, if we misunderstand this, it will really curb our ability to impact our community. But all of us on fire... And that really could make a difference. And that's the kind of church that I want to grow up into. So let me leave you with four questions. The band's going to come out here in about two or three minutes. But before they do, I want to leave you with four questions. And I want you to consider the answers. And perhaps, if God prompts you based on any of these four, my prayer really is that you'll not just think about it, but that you'll do something about the answers to these questions. So here they are. Question one, what grace... Or gift has God apportioned to you? If you don't know the answer to that question, you might, one, ask God, and he might help you understand it. Two, you might ask your community group leader. That's what they're there for in some ways. And if you're not a part of a community group, I'm just telling you, me, Joel Trainer, the person, nothing in my role gets me as excited about a conversation that would help you discover how God made you and, and what gifts that you have. I get fired up about it. And so fill out the online connection card. I would be thrilled 
to get to talk with you about this. There's question number one. Question number two, are you using your gifts in ministry to serve others? Do you actually believe that you are in ministry? Be honest with yourself. Number three, are there ways that we can better equip you? That's my role. I want to be great at it. And I probably need your help from time to time to figure that out. So if you have ideas, I'm open to that. That's what I see my role as. Number four, are you doing your part in helping us grow into a mature and healthy church? And maybe the best way to re-ask that question would be this. If our whole church, if everybody else knew their gifts and used their gifts like you, what would our church be like? I hope that you'll just take a minute and think about those four questions and then we'll sing together to close our service in a minute. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.